Cleanliness is next to godliness is not a Bible verse. That's not in the Bible. But I did want to find out who said that. That was John Wesley in 1778. So still a pretty good place to come from, John Wesley. He is the first one credited with coining that phrase, cleanliness is next to godliness. And I never really understood what that meant until I first visited Nepal. And Nanda, who's our pastor over there, when I would ask him, what is it like? Very often he would use the word dirty. And I always thought, maybe this is a language barrier thing. He doesn't quite know what I'm asking. Uh, I'm sure it's lovely. Well, when I got there, I realized and saw for the first time the actual dirtiness and filthiness that is associated with idolatry. I'll give you three examples because it was, that was one of the things that struck me was how dirty it was. And not just because of lack of infrastructure and sanitation, but the worship and the religion itself. In the Holy River in Nepal, going right through Pashpati Temple, the Holy River is where they burn bodies and dump the ashes into the river. It is also the same place at the same location where they dump the bodies, where ceremonial bathing is done and drinking the water for various ceremonies are done. So they bathe and drink the same holy river where they dump the ashes of the bodies they just burned. You maybe have seen the red dots that will be put on the head of some Hindus. This is called a tika, at least in Nepali. I don't know what it would be in Hindi, but it's called a tika. And what they do is they take the dust and they, uh, I'm not sure if they use something to emulsify it a little bit, but they take the dust and they put it on the forehead. It's a blessing, it's a symbol, and that kind of thing. Well, at these temples that you go to, they have these communal shrines with an idol where you can take some of the dust. And what very often people will do is if they are sick or if they are injured or something like that, they will come to get the blessing from the God and put it on their forehead. So we are just coming out of a pandemic here. So imagine if somebody has, for example, the coronavirus, and you want the God to heal you of the coronavirus, so you take your finger and you put it in the dust and you put it on your forehead. Then the next person comes up and they want to be healed of the coronavirus, so they put their finger in it. You're starting to get a certain amount of coronavirus in the dust. Then somebody else comes who is perfectly healthy, but puts it on and now, now it's on them. There's just a very simple contagion issue there and you can't throw away the dust because it's holy. That's example number two. And number three, from what I saw there, cow urine is used as a purifying agent. And this is the thing that people very often think I'm making up. And they think I'm being insulting to that culture. I, I promise you, I'm not. I met a very kind old man who lived across the street from the Giris, whose job was to take his cow and on holy days, sell the urine of the cow door to door. It is used to anoint your hair. It is used to anoint the backs of your ears. It is drunk in purification ceremonies. And... You know, in the Bible, it says everything is purified with blood. Well, in that part of the world where they worship Hinduism, everything is purified with cow urine. So this is when I first understood that phrase, cleanliness is next to godliness. And I never quite appreciated the book of Leviticus until I went to Nepal. And this is, of course, not the case in every place, but it's, a, it's an example of the kind of deception that can come to people. And when we recognize that the Bible teaches that false religions are doctrines of demons and that demons have a despising attitude towards humanity, it makes sense that they would want not only to deceive but also to degrade these people. So knowing that, that God's commandments in the Bible to be clean are rather understandable. And this is a very stark difference that you see in Nepal is that the Christian houses and the Christian people, at least in the, the slums where we were going, they're clean, they're tidy, they're fixed, they're repaired. 
Because there's something that happens to a person when they realize that Jesus loves them and wants the best for them. And this section today, it covers the kind of things in the Mosaic Law that produce uncleanness. And they also go through the ceremonies of how to cleanse it. And hygiene aside, although as we go through this, I think you can recognize that there's a lot of hygienic motivation behind this. Ultimately, this is a spiritual picture that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that as we go through too. We'll begin with chapter 12. That's the short one. And then we'll get to 13 and and following. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are complete. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her menstruation. And she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old, for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. You'll remember the last narrative piece that we have in the book of Leviticus is the death of Nadab and Abihu at the ordination of the priests. So God has provided the sacrifices. He's ordained the priests. But the priests, not even all of them, made it through the first ceremony. So God now teaches them what they must do in order to stand in his presence. And he lays out from chapter 11, where he gave the food laws, now into chapter 12 through 15, where he gives the cleanliness laws. And he begins by giving the law for women after childbirth. And feminist theologians love to jump on this and say, this is so wrong that the Bible says that a woman has sinned by giving birth and, and that's just not right. So that's obviously not what he's saying. So let's define our terms here, and I think this will really help us. What exactly does the word clean mean in this context? Because obviously more than being cleaned as in washed, but that's also part of it. So let's look at this. The first thing you need to know, clean in the book of Leviticus and in all related contexts, clean does not mean righteous and unclean does not mean sinful. The minute you learn that, This becomes a lot less hostile (laughs) as you read through it. For example, he is not saying that this woman who has had a child has done something wrong, and that's why she's unclean. It doesn't say sinful, does it? What does it say? Unclean. It doesn't say that she shall be righteous again. It says she shall be clean. And quite often in the Bible, words like that are not that complicated. They just mean what they say. So clean. That said, it is often used as a symbol of, for righteousness. But cleanness here is all about access to the sanctuary of God. Those who are unclean are not permitted to come near God. If that, that's the law that it says right there. She cannot touch anything holy. She cannot come to the tabernacle. So she's not being flogged in the streets, right? She's not being punished, but she's not able to approach the holy place of the Lord in such a state. 
Now, if you are clean, you may come and worship. There are some very important divisions in the book of Leviticus, and I was waiting until we got here to discuss these. There's a division in the book of the law between what is holy and what is common. It's what the priests were told to teach the people, what is holy and what is common. For example, the priest was a holy man, and the congregant was a common man. And the differences between the sanctuary of the Lord, which is a holy place, and everywhere else, which is a common place. Now, within that bracket of being common, there is a difference between what is clean and what is unclean. So you have holy and common, and then within common, you have clean and unclean. Now, something that is common may approach what is holy, but it must be clean in order to do so. And a lot of these laws that we read discuss the transitions between them on how an animal, when it is sacrificed, becomes from being common to being holy, but it has to be clean first, right? And it talks about how if you touch a dead animal, you are gone from being clean to being unclean. And you must perform the, the rite, whether that's waiting or washing, or whatever it is, to be made clean again. So the, these are the divisions that we see here, and, and these are the categories we're talking about. And they all have to do with approaching the holy place of God. So these rules here, for the most part, but especially in the first half of Leviticus, are not about wrongdoing. They are about purity, and they are about ceremony. And when I say purity, I mean that in a, in a very neutral sense, that there is a pure napkin and a defiled napkin. One of them is not in the wrong, one of them is just clean, and one of them is unclean. So this is what we're talking about. And so this teaches us quite a bit about access to God. Psalm 24, we sang this song tonight, Psalm 24, 3 through 6, says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? That's kind of the whole question of Leviticus. Who shall stand in the holy place of the Lord? He who has clean hands, clean is a key word, and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord, and righteousness, notice that there's a separation there. Clean hands, pure heart, leads to righteousness, not the other way around. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And that's what all this is about, is seeking God's face. These laws were teaching us a lesson about God's holiness and man's sin. So, knowing that, that clean does not mean righteous. This was the mistake of the Pharisees, right? I'm righteous because I don't have leprosy. He's unrighteous because he does. Jesus rebuked them for that. Knowing that, when a woman had a child, she became unclean. Now, I think we all understand that, that she has been defiled in the flesh. We still do this today. This is why doctors wear gloves. This is why doctors wear masks. This is why even the husband has to put the thing on when his wife is giving birth, because it's unclean. It's wonderful, miraculous, and celebrated, but it's not clean. And when this happened, for seven days, she was to be considered unclean. Nobody was to touch her, really. No one was to come around her and... and uh, you know, be sitting on the bed with her and things like that. If they did, they would be considered unclean. So if you were a doctor in this culture, you would spend most of your days in a state of uncleanness. On the eighth day, when the baby was circumcised, if it was a boy, she is allowed, do you see, to live normal life. So she doesn't spend 40 days of seclusion. She has about seven like that. 
And, you know, we usually do about two to three days of that in our day, but back then they did a little longer. I think with less medical advancement, it probably was a good idea. There's also a holy number of seven. But when the baby is circumcised, she is declared clean, but she's not allowed to go to the sanctuary yet. Do you see that that's the difference? So she's still able to be up and about and, and as much as she can and see people and everything, but she can't go to the tabernacle. So one week plus 33 days for a young boy is 40 days. For daughters, the total was 80 days. And it quite simply does not explain why this is. And in our day and age, it's pretty quick to rush to uh, sexism and, and misogyny and all the rest of it. But God is not a misogynist. There are a few reasons we can consider. The three most common that you see is, number one, this is related to Eve's sin. This is one of the reasons Paul gives why women are not to teach in the church. Because Eve was, dece- was deceived and not Adam, and she sinned first. So there are things that God does as a continual rebuke to women for that. It could be that because this, the blood is what defiles and having a daughter is a woman who is going to be able to enter into the same kind of uncleanness, that there's an extra state of, of being cleansed. Or it could be that uh, there were some sort of complications that they were trying to prevent, something that we just simply don't know. Uh, I'm not really going to speculate on that. It, it is unavoidable to say that the Bible gives special honor to men. And I don't know if this is why that is, but there are, there, are, there are orders that God has given. And this doesn't seem to be what he's after here, but it's just important to know. Afterwards, she'd go to the tabernacle. She'd offer a burnt offering and a sin offering. Go back to our first two weeks if you want to know what those were. It's also cool to know that in Luke chapter 2, when it says that the time had come for their purification, Mary and Joseph, Jesus' parents, they came and they offered two turtle doves or two young pigeons, which tells us from this chapter, Mary and Joseph were poor. Because if you were not poor, you would bring a lamb and a turtle dove or a pigeon. It says if they can't afford that, then they bring the two doves or the two pigeons. And I could go off and preach right there that they brought the lamb with them and his name was Jesus. But anyway, that'll preach, right? Maybe at Christmas time. Hopefully you can see the idea here is about ceremony and sanitation. This is not about moral disapproval of women or leprosy or anything else as we move on. So chapter 13, this is a long one, so let's read this. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, When a person has on the skin of his body a swelling or an eruption or a spot, and it turns into a case of leprous disease on the skin of his body, Then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest, or to one of the sons the priests, and the priest shall examine the diseased area on the skin of his body. And if the hair in the diseased area has turned white, and the disease appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it is a case of leprous disease. When the priest has examined him, he shall pronounce him unclean. But if the spot is white in the skin of his body, and appears no deeper than the skin, and the hair in it has not turned white... The priest shall shut up the diseased person for seven days, and the priest shall examine him on the seventh day. And if in his eyes the disease is checked and the disease has not spread in the skin, then the priest shall shut him up for another seven days. And the priest shall examine him again on the seventh day, and if the diseased area has faded and the disease has not spread in the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him clean, it is only an eruption, and he shall wash his clothes and be clean." But if the eruption spreads in the skin, after he has shown himself to the priest for his cleansing, he shall appear again before the priest, and the priest shall look, and if the eruption has spread in the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean, it is a leprous disease. When a man is afflicted with a leprous disease, he shall be brought to the priest." 
and the priest shall look. And if there is a white swelling in the skin that is turned the hair white, and there is raw flesh in the swelling, it is a chronic leprous disease in the skin of his body, and the priest shall pronounce him unclean. He shall not shut him up, for he is unclean. And if the leprous disease breaks out in the skin, so that the leprous disease covers all the skin of the diseased person from head to foot, so far as the priest can see, then the priest shall look, and if the leprous disease has covered all his body, he shall pronounce him clean of the disease. It has all turned white, and he is clean. But when raw flesh appears on him, he shall be unclean. And the priest shall examine the raw flesh and pronounce him unclean. Raw flesh is unclean, for it is a leprous disease. But if the raw flesh recovers and turns white again, then he shall come to the priest, and the priest shall examine him. And if the disease has turned white, then the priest shall pronounce the diseased person clean. He is clean. If there is in the skin of one's body a boil and it heals, and in the place of the boil there comes a white swelling or a reddish white spot, then it shall be shown to the priest. And the priest shall look, and if it appears deeper than the skin and its hair has turned white, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is a case of leprous disease that is broken out in the boil. But if the priest examines it and there is no white hair in it, and it is not deeper than the skin but has faded, then the priest shall shut him up seven days." And if it spreads in the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is a disease. But if the spot remains in one place and does not spread, it is the scar of the boil, and the priest shall pronounce him clean. Or when the body has a burn on its skin, and the raw flesh of the burn becomes a spot, reddish white or white, the priest shall examine it. And if the hair in the spot has turned white and it appears deeper than the skin, then it is a leprous disease. It is broken out in the burn, and the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is a case of leprous disease. But if the priest examines it, and there is no white hair in the spot, and it is no deeper than the skin, but has faded, the priest shall shut him up seven days, and the priest shall examine him the seventh day. If it is spreading in the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is a case of leprous disease. But if the spot remains in one place and does not spread in the skin, but has faded, it is a swelling from the burn, and the priest shall pronounce him clean, for it is the scar of the burn. When a man or woman has a disease on the head or the beard, the priest shall examine the disease. And if it appears deeper than the skin, and the hair in it is yellow and thin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is an itch, a leprous disease of the head or the beard. And if the priest examines the itching disease, and it appears no deeper than the skin, and there is no black hair in it, then the priest shall shut up the person with the itching disease for seven days. And on the seventh day, the priest shall examine the disease. If the itch has not spread, and there is in it no yellow hair, and the itch appears to be no deeper than the skin, then he shall shave himself. But the itch he shall not shave, and the priest shall shut up the person with the itching disease for another seven days. And on the seventh day the priest shall examine the itch, and if the itch has not spread in the skin, and it appears to be no deeper than the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him clean. He shall wash his clothes and be clean. But if the itch spreads in the skin after his cleansing, then the priest shall examine him. And if the itch has spread in the skin, the priest need not seek for the yellow hair. He is unclean. But if in his eyes the itch is unchanged and black hair has grown in it, the itch is healed and he is clean, and the priest shall pronounce him clean. When a man or a woman has spots on the skin of the body, white spots, the priest shall look, and if the spots on the skin of the body are of a dull white, it is a leucoderma that is broken out in the skin, he is clean. If a man's hair falls out from his head, he is bald, he is clean. <laughs> Some of y'all are real happy about that. 
And if a man's hair falls out from his forehead, that would be eyebrows, he has baldness of the forehead. He is clean. But if there is on the bald head or the bald forehead a reddish-white diseased area, it is a leprous disease breaking out on his bald head or his bald forehead. Then the priest shall examine him. And if the diseased swelling is reddish-white on his bald head or on his bald forehead, like the appearance of leprous disease in the skin of the body, he is a leprous man. He is unclean. The priest must pronounce him unclean. His disease is on his head. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. When there is a case of leprous disease in a garment, whether a woolen or a linen garment, in warp or woof of linen or wool, or in a skin or in anything made of skin, if the disease is greenish or reddish in the garment, or in the skin or in the warp or the woof, or in any article made of skin, it is a case of leprous disease, and it shall be shown to the priest. And the priest shall examine the disease and shut up that which has the disease for seven days. Then he shall examine the disease on the seventh day. If the disease has spread in the garment, in the warp or the woof or in the skin, whatever be the use of the skin, the disease is a persistent leprous disease. It is unclean. And he shall burn the garment or the warp or the woof, the wool or the linen or any article made of skin that is diseased, for it is a persistent leprous disease. It shall be burned in the fire." And if the priest examines, and if the disease has not spread in the garment, in the warp or the woof, or in any article made of skin, then the priest shall command that they wash the thing in which is the disease, and he shall shut it up for another seven days. And the priest shall examine the diseased thing after it has been washed, and if the appearance of the diseased area has not changed, though the disease has not spread, it is unclean. You shall burn it in the fire, whether the rot is on the back or on the front." But if the priest examines, and if the diseased area has faded after it has been washed, he shall tear it out of the garment, or the skin, or the warp, or the woof. Then if it appears again in the garment, in the warp, or the woof, or in any article made of skin, it is spreading. You shall burn with fire whatever has the disease. But the garment, or the warp, or the woof, or any article made of skin from which the disease departs when you have washed it, shall then be washed a second time, and be clean." This is the law for a case of leprous disease in a garment of wool or linen, either in the warp or the woof or in any article made of skin to determine whether it is clean or unclean. So this is about identifying leprosy. And I think we can all get what it means by saying clean or unclean when we talk about skin disease. So you need to apply that same categorization to the other things that we talk about. Childbirth, we're going to talk about other things as we go on. Uh, We're not talking about morality here as much as we are talking about hygiene and ceremony. So this is about identifying leprosy. We hear the word leprosy and immediately we in this room think of something called Hansen's disease. Hansen's disease is what is typically called today leprosy, where the fingers and toes will fall off and things like that. Uh, I have been to, as I said, Nepal, and I was in Pashpati Temple, and there are people with leprosy lying around, and it's a very pathetic sight. Some of them you can see where they've been, uh, they've been bitten, and they've had animals that have come and bitten them, and they can't feel it, and so the wound remains un, unhealed. But I hope you can see as we go through this that the term leprosy, which in Hebrew is tsara'at, is much broader than just modern-day leprosy or Hansen's disease. It would include things we think like eczema, 
things like psoriasis, pretty much anything on your skin which is contagious. I would imagine the way that I get poison ivy would probably be considered a leprous disease, at least for a little while. This does not include everyday scrapes or burns, blemishes, pimples, things like that. We're talking about things here that cause public concern. This is to do with quarantine more than anything else. So the priest was to examine the person. I'm not going to run through every one of these again. We just read them. He's looking for a few things. He's looking for white hair. This, of course, is not talking about age. This is talking about a discoloration of the hair. And in this culture, everybody, with little exception, would have had black hair. So very easy to see that. If there is a sore and there's white hair coming at it, the idea is that it has reached down into the hair follicle, which is the other thing he's looking for. Is it deeper than the skin? If it's just on the skin, then it's going to be okay. But if it's getting down into the rest of your body, then it's more serious. Looking for raw flesh, that's how the ESV translates it. Raw flesh would be an open sore that isn't healing. That's raw flesh. Looking for red or white spots. Uh, he talks about diseases in the skin of the, near the face, so the beard or the hair. Looking, is there yellowing of the hair that's coming out? And uh, those are the things he looked for. If he found any of that, the first step was to quarantine the person for seven days. I imagine they would have had tents. They would have had places where they could stay for seven days. If they come back and nothing has changed or it's gotten better, then they would go back for seven more days. If you were dealing with something to do with the hair during this process, you would have shaved the rest of your hair, except for the part that was infected, because you're trying to see if the hair that then grows back after a week or two is it also discolored. That would indicate that the, uh, the disease is spreading. So if he goes through seven days and nothing's changed, he goes through seven more days and it's either receding or not getting any worse, then he could declare him clean and he was free to go. This was also the case for clothing. They were looking for green or red spots. So this would be mold. This would be some kind of fungus uh, that was growing on it. Even later on, we're going to see in the next chapter, in houses, if you had it growing on your wall, they had a process for that too. But if the guy was found out to be leprous, then they were to go essentially into mourning. They were to let their hair down, indicates they probably had longer hair than, than men typically do in, in our culture today. They would have torn their clothes they would have covered their upper lip. The word there actually is mustache, which is pretty fun. They translated it neutrally because it applied to women too. But I mean, this is, we do this today. We just did this with COVID, right? You cover up your face because you don't want to be breathing on people. So, and then they were to cry out unclean. They weren't supposed to go through the street wailing it. The point is, if somebody's going to get close to you, you go unclean, unclean. It's like, don't touch me. I'm contagious is what this is trying to say here. Now that seems harsh. You got to go live outside the camp. You got to go live by yourself. And that is harsh. And I've heard this brought up by, by atheists or whatever. And they, God made people that were sick live outside the camp. No, he didn't. He made people that were contagious and a danger to the rest of the congregation live outside the camp. We still do this. We just do this in hospitals, right? And it's nice that we have things better now. But back then, this is what they had. And as we will see when you get to the New Testament, one of the things that Jesus and Malachi and others will rebuke the people for is because they were allowing these people to be totally abandoned. See, I'm not saying you, you couldn't take care of them or you couldn't feed them or you couldn't help them, but they just can't be around everybody. If he's got something growing in his skin, I, I can't let the rest of my children touch that. It's not clean. This is why leprosy makes a profound image in the Bible to represent sin. I hope you, you catch the difference. You, because you had leprosy did not mean you had sinned. However, that is a condition that the Bible often uses to illustrate sin. 
There are several examples in the Bible of people who were struck with leprosy because they sinned. In Numbers chapter 12, verse 10, Miriam was gossiping about Moses and God struck her with leprosy. Joab, who killed the people that David was trying to make an alliance with, David said, may, may there always be somebody in Joab's family who has leprosy. And 2 Samuel 3.29 says that's exactly what happened. Gehazi, in 2 Kings 5.27, this is Elisha's servant. When Naaman was healed of his leprosy, but Gehazi went back to try and get some money out of him, Elisha cursed Gehazi. He said, the, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you now. 2 Chronicles 26.20, King Uzziah tried to burn incense in the temple, which was not his role, and God struck him with leprosy. They were all judged for that. So sometimes there is a correlation in Scripture, but not always. And the clearest example of that is Job. Remember Job, it said, was afflicted with loathsome sores. This would have fallen under the category of leprosy, according to the Mosaic Law. But had Job done anything wrong? No, that's kind of the whole point of the book of Job, is he hadn't done anything wrong. Which is why when Jesus shows up, he says, listen, you, you can't just say that because somebody has a disease, they did something wrong. So if anybody's ever told you that, you're missing one of the huge points of the Bible. That tragedy is not a sign necessarily that God is angry with you. But it is a good illustration of sin. So if we want to talk about leprosy proper, Hansen's disease, it begins with a deadening feeling in your extremities. You lose feeling. So your fingers, you can't, you can't feel with them anymore. Your hands or your feet or anything like that. Which then starts to lead to injuries because you can't feel what your body is doing. So it's very common for them to cut themselves or to break bones, but they can't even tell. Uh, you know, if you feel something on your hand, you'll move it away quickly. But if you can't feel it, you'll get hurt. It leads to infection very easily. People will get lesions. You've seen them, the sores that will grow. And ultimately, it leads to, the, to ne necropsy, that the fingers will fall off, the toes will fall off. Uh, as I said, I saw people that very clearly had animal bites on them in Nepal that were not healing, and they were never going to heal because the skin was dead. And this is why the Bible will use this as a picture of sin, because sin starts by what? Deadening your conscience. It's coming at you, so you, you just don't really feel the prick of regret anymore when you do something wrong. And that leads to infection and injury of the soul. So you're not worried about the sin so much. So you start stepping out and you do things that are hurting you and hurting other people. And it starts to get inside. And it culminates in infection and even loss of that part of yourself. It's what sin does. It wrecks people. Which is why in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 16, I'm going to read this because Isaiah uses the example of becoming clean as a, as a picture of repentance. He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. So you see, the Bible will use the picture of being cleansed of leprosy as a picture of being cleansed from sin. Which is why we, as Christians who are holy and are clean in Christ Jesus, need to stay separate. We need to stay separate from those who have spiritual leprosy, shall we say. This is not to say that we can't talk to them or try to speak to them about Jesus or work with them. Paul makes that very clear. But we cannot be like them, even if it means we are the ones who end up on the outskirts. I think a classic example of this right now is th this ridiculous pride month that we're all going through right now. That the world is demanding that even and especially in the church that we celebrate homosexuality, not just tolerate it, not just know about it and be quiet about it. No, celebrate it. You must. 
And if you don't, then you're hateful and you should be stopped. Well, that's called being pushed to the outskirts. We've got to be okay with that. Because we are clean in Christ Jesus and we cannot allow ourselves to be befouled by the sin of the world. So, that's identifying leprosy. Chapter 14 is all about cleansing leprosy. It's another rather long one. So, let's get right into it. Leviticus 14. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, This shall be the law of the leprous person for the day of his cleansing. This is a much happier chapter. He shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall go out of the camp, and the priest shall look. Then if the case of leprous disease is healed in the leprous person, the priest shall command them to take for him who is to be cleansed two live clean birds and cedar wood, scarlet yarn, and hyssop. Hyssop was a plant that they would use to make soap at this time. And the priest shall command them to kill one of the birds in an earthenware vessel over fresh water. He shall take the live bird with the cedar wood and the scarlet yarn and the hyssop and dip them in the live bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. He shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease. Then he shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird go into the open field. And he who is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes and shave off all his hair and bathe himself in water and he shall be clean. And after that, he may come into the camp, but live outside his tent seven days. And on the seventh day, he shall shave off all his hair from his head, his beard, and his eyebrows. He shall shave off all his hair. Then he shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and he shall be clean. And on the eighth day, he shall take two male lambs without blemish, and one ewe lamb, a year old without blemish, and a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, and one log of oil. And the priest who cleanses him shall set the man who is to be cleansed and these things before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall take one of the male lambs and offer it for a guilt offering along with the log of oil and wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. And he shall kill the lamb in the place where they kill the sin offering and the burnt offering in the place of the sanctuary. For the guilt offering like the sin offering belongs to the priest. It is most holy. The priest shall take some of the blood of the guilt offering, and the priest shall put it on the lobe of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Then the priest shall take some of the log of oil and pour it into the palm of his own left hand, dip his right finger in the oil that is in his left hand, and sprinkle some oil with his finger seven times before the Lord. And some of the oil that remains in his hand, the priest shall put on the lobe of the right ear who is to be cleansed, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot, on top of the blood of the guilt offering. And the rest of the oil that is in the priest's hand, he shall put on the head of him who is to be cleansed. Then the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord. The priest shall offer the sin offering to make atonement for him who is to be cleansed from his uncleanness. And afterward, he shall kill the burnt offering. And the priest shall offer the burnt offering and the grain offering on the altar. Thus, the priest shall make atonement for him and he shall be clean. But if he is poor and cannot afford so much, then he shall take one male lamb for a guilt offering to be waived to make atonement for him, and a tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering, and a log of oil, also two turtle doves or two pigeons, whichever he can afford. This one shall be a sin offering and the other a burnt offering. And on the eighth day, he shall bring them for his cleansing to the priest, to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord. And the priest shall take the lamb of the guilt offering and the log of oil, and the priest shall wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. And he shall kill the lamb of the guilt offering. 
And the priest shall take some of the blood of the guilt offering and put it on the lobe of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed, on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. And the priest shall pour some of the oil into the palm of his own left hand and shall sprinkle with his right finger some of the oil that is in his left hand seven times before the Lord. And the priest shall put some of the oil that is in his hand on the lobe of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed, on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot, in the place where the blood of the guilt offering was put. And the rest of the oil that is in the priest's hand, he shall put on the head of him who is to be cleansed to make atonement for him before the Lord. And he shall offer of the turtle doves or pigeons, whichever he can afford, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering, along with the grain offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for him who is being cleansed. This is the law for him and whom is a case of leprous disease who cannot afford the offerings for his cleansing." The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When you come into the land of Canaan, which I give you for a possession, and I put a case of leprous disease in a house in the land of your possession, then he who owns the house shall come and tell the priest, There seems to me to be some case of disease in my house. Then the priest shall command that they empty the house before the priest goes to examine the disease, lest all that is in the house be declared unclean. And afterward, the priest shall go in to see the house, and he shall examine the disease. And if the disease is in the walls of the house with greenish or reddish spots, and if it appears to be deeper than the surface, then the priest shall go out of the house to the door of the house and shut up the house seven days. And the priest shall come again on the seventh day and look. If the disease has spread in the walls of the house, then the priest shall command that they take out the stones in which is the disease and throw them into an unclean place outside the city. And he shall have the inside of the house scraped all around and the plaster that they scrape off, they shall pour in an unclean place outside the city. Then they shall take other stones and put them in the place of those stones and he shall take other plaster and plaster the house." If the disease breaks out again in the house, after he has taken out the stones and scraped the house and plastered it, then the priest shall go and look. And if the disease has spread in the house, it is a persistent leprous disease in the house. It is unclean. And he shall break down the house, its stones and timber and all the plaster of the house, and he shall carry them out of the city to an unclean place. Moreover, whoever enters the house while it is shut up shall be unclean until the evening, and whoever sleeps in the house shall wash his clothes, and whoever eats in the house shall wash his clothes. But if the priest comes and looks, and if the disease has not spread in the house after the house was plastered, then the priest shall pronounce the house clean, for the disease is healed. And for the cleansing of the house, he shall take two small birds with cedar wood and scarlet yarn and hyssop, and shall kill one of the birds in an earthenware vessel over fresh water, and shall take the cedar wood and the hyssop and the scarlet yarn, along with the live bird, and dip them in the blood of the bird that was killed, and in the fresh water, and sprinkle the house seven times. Thus he shall cleanse the house with the blood of the bird, and with the fresh water, and with the live bird, and with the cedar wood, and hyssop, and scarlet yarn. And he shall let the live bird go out of the city into the open country. So he shall make atonement for the house, and it shall be clean." This is the law for any case of leprous disease, for an itch, for leprous disease in a garment or in a house, and for a swelling or an eruption or a spot, to show when it is unclean and when it is clean. This is the law for leprous disease. So this section contains the ceremony for restoring a cleansed leper back to fellowship. So chapter 14 is all about, or 13 is all about finding out, does he have leprosy? Chapter 14 is all about if the leprosy goes away, what is the process for cleansing him? 
So the first thing the priest would do, hopefully I can simplify this for you a little bit, he would go to him outside the city and make sure that he passes inspection. So right there, by the way, you can see that how is he supposed to let people know? Well, I'm sure people would have gone out and visited and seen him. It's not that they could never see anyone ever again. It's that you just needed to be careful and hygienic. So if he gets the word, he goes out to see him. And in the field, so this ceremony does not take place in the tabernacle, but in the field. And if it looks like, indeed, things are progressing better, he would take two birds, pigeons, turtle doves, something that was clean, kill one of them and drain its blood into a bowl of water, fresh water. Then he would take that mixture of the blood and the water. He would take cedar wood, red thread, and hyssop, which would be a lot of fun to speculate on the symbolism of those things. I'm sure the red thread represents blood. Hyssop is obviously a cleansing agent. Cedar wood is a strong tree in the Bible. In any case, he would take those three things. He would take that into the blood and the water, and he would sprinkle it on the man seven times. The rest of that blood and water would go on top of the other bird, and then they would set that bird free, which is a symbol. And there's an interesting debate that I read about on what does this symbolize? Does this symbolize the man going free, or what I think is more likely, the disease departing and going away? It's going to be the same thing we see with the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement. They would sacrifice one and set the other one go. Then, after that ceremony, he would wash his clothes, shave his hair, wash himself, he was allowed to go into the camp, but he was not allowed to go inside the house. But that's an improvement on where he was. And that's for seven days. Then on the eighth day, he would do all that again. Reason being, if things are starting to come back, you would know. But he's got to shave his head, wash his clothes, wash himself again, and go to the tabernacle. And he had to bring three lambs, two male and one female, flour and oil. First, the priest would offer a guilt offering which is interesting that it's a guilt offering because usually this would be if you had to repay something that you had stolen or ripped off. So uh, maybe this is, this is the loss of time from the Lord or something. I don't know. But you would offer the guilt offering. Then you would take the blood of that, put it on the man's ear, his thumb, and his big toe. Then he would take the oil, sprinkle that seven times before the Lord. And then he would put the oil on the ear, the thumb, the big toe, and then whatever was left in the left hand of the priest would go on the head. Then he would offer a sin offering, a burnt offering, and a grain offering. The only thing we're not doing here is a peace offering, which was voluntary. With the remaining lambs or birds. It's the same ceremony for the poor or for those who could afford lambs. It's repeated in there twice. At this point, after those offerings, the leper is considered clean and he's able to return to his family and his home. So pretty cool that the first thing he does when he's, when he's cleansed is worship in the tabernacle. We also have rules for rooting out, same word, sara'at, leprosy, out of a house. So this is what I mean. It can't just mean leprosy, Hansen's disease, as we think about it. It's a broad catch-all term for fungal infection, especially in the skin. But if you've got mold or something growing in your house, or, you know, all kinds of nasty things can creep in. There's a very, very similar ritual. Very briefly, the Lord said at the beginning of that instruction that this is going to be when they actually have houses. Because right now they're living in tents. He says, when you get into the promised land and you move into a house, this is the law for that. One of the things God will tell them is you're not going to have to build your own houses. You're going to drive the people out. You're going to move into their houses and they'll be all ready for you. So he's already anticipating what's going to happen in the book of Joshua here. What they would do is say, hey, I think there's something growing in my house. Empty the house, take everything out. Then the priest will go in and he's looking for green or red spots deeper than the surface. 
I imagine he had a sponge or something the equivalent of that day and try to wash it off. But if it looks like it's kind of sunk in, okay, we lock the house for seven days. Nobody goes in. If anybody goes in, they're unclean. And then he goes back after a week. If it has spread, or maybe if he scrubbed it, but it's like just as bright as it was when he left it, then they're going to rip out those stones. They're going to knock the plaster off. They're going to take those stones away, and they're going to take them to the ash heap, the unclean place out of town. Then they would rebuild it. And if it came back, then the, the house was condemned. You couldn't live there anymore. They would tear it apart. And they'd get rid of it. If not, it was considered clean. And you'd perform the same ritual before with the hyssop and the cedar wood and the red thread and the blood and the water. And they'd sprinkle the house seven times. But no offerings, you'll notice, because offerings are a form of worship and they are for people, not for animals, not for inanimate objects, obviously. So now that you've read that, flip with me very quickly to Matthew chapter 8. Now that we know what the ceremony was for a leper, let's look at Matthew chapter 8. This is, of course, talking about Jesus. It's in the gospel. It says, When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Make me what? Clean. We know what that word means now. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. So look at this. Now, knowing everything we know about Leviticus, and you read that, first of all, the leper comes up to him. They're outside the city so he can do this, but still, brave guy. And Jesus is kind of keeping it hush-hush. So it's entirely possible this man had put on a robe or something so that nobody could see the fact that he was leprous. Maybe it was on his arm or something. And he gets up to Jesus and he says, Lord, and he pulls back the, the cloak and you can see it on his arm or something. And so you can make me clean. Make me clean, right? This is what we've talked about. And Jesus reaches out and touches him. And I like to think Jesus put his hand right on that disease. He said, yeah, I will. I want you to be clean, so be clean. If Jesus had touched him, he would have been unclean. That's something else to consider. Because Jesus spent all this time with these sick people, he would have also been unclean most of the time. He would not have had to go through the long seven-day ritual, but he would have, until evening, he would have been unclean. Very interesting to consider that. And Jesus tells him, go to the priest and bring the offering that Moses talked about. Well, you just read about it in Leviticus chapter 14. You might want to make a note in your Bible. Leviticus 14. That's where you get that from. He says, go keep the law. Do what Moses said. Because Jesus was not opposed to the law. Although when he fulfilled it, it became obsolete as we have talked about at length. Jesus gave the sign of cleansing lepers as evidence of his status as Messiah. When John the Baptist sent messengers to him say, are you the guy? Or is there another one coming? Jesus in Luke 7, 22 said, go back and tell them what you see. The blind can see, the lame can walk, the lepers are cleansed. This is evidence that Jesus was in fact the Messiah. Because every ailment and every affliction meets its end in Jesus Christ. You know, so often when we come to, to pray, what I hear people say, I want you to pray for me. And I say, all right, I'm going to pray that God heals you. And they say, well, pray that if God wants me to be healed, then, then, then maybe. And, you know, I understand why we say that. But look at what Jesus said to that leper there. If you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus goes, I will. I want this for you. That is Jesus' default position towards people who are sick. 
There's a million reasons why we know that God allows things to happen. But when you come to ask for prayer, come and ask in faith. Jesus said, your faith has made you well. Just come ask the Lord in faith. He desires that. He told us, he commanded us in James chapter 5 to pray for the sick. Matthew 8, 17 says that when Jesus healed people, it fulfilled Isaiah 53 that he bore our diseases. We have seen multiple healings in this church, in this room. So we need to remember that Jesus is willing to heal and you've got to come to him in faith. And don't feel like you have to come up timidly like this leper and say, God, if you want, I don't want to, I don't want to impose, Lord. He says, I will be clean. Have faith when you come and ask the Lord for healing. But more than any of that, as leprosy is a symbol of sin, we have been cleansed from sin, have we not? By a touch from Jesus. Our consciences are awakened instead of dead. Our lives begin to be restored. Our destiny is changed forever. And if you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus will save you. Everything in your life will change. Not only your eternal destiny, but right now, everything will begin to turn around and the dead parts of your life will start to come back. So come and believe and you'll find healing from Jesus. One more chapter, chapter 15. This one is not quite as long as the other two. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, once again, by the way, Moses and Aaron. This is unique in the book of Leviticus. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. And this is the law of his uncleanness for a discharge. Whether his body runs with his discharge or his body is blocked up by his discharge, it is his uncleanness. Every bed on which the one of the discharge lies shall be unclean, and everything on which he sits shall be unclean. And anyone who touches his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever sits on anything on which the one with the discharge has sat shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever touches the body of the one with the discharge shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And if the one with the discharge spits on someone, don't just think of being rude here. Think of a sneeze, think of a cough, think of something like that, okay? Who is clean, then he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And any saddle on which the one with the discharge rides shall be unclean. And whoever touches anything that was under him shall be unclean until the evening. And whoever carries such things shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Anyone from whom the one with the discharge touches without having rinsed his hands in water shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And the earthenware vessel that the one with the discharge touches shall be broken and every vessel of wood shall be rinsed in water. And when the one with the discharge is cleansed of his discharge, then he shall count for himself seven days for his cleansing and wash his clothes. He shall bathe his body in fresh water and shall be clean. And on the eighth day, he shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons and come before the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting and give them to the priest. And the priest shall use them, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord for his discharge." If a man has an emission of semen, he shall bathe his whole body in water and be unclean until the evening. And every garment and every skin on which the semen comes shall be washed with water and be unclean until the evening. If a man lies with a woman and has an emission of semen, both of them shall bathe themselves in water and be unclean until the evening. When a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days. 
and whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. And everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. Everything also on which she sits shall be unclean. And whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever touches anything on which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Whether it is the bed or anything on which she sits, when he touches it, he shall be unclean until the evening. And if any man lies with her and her menstrual impurity comes upon him, he shall be unclean seven days. And every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of her discharge she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge, shall be to her as the bed of her impurity. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water, and be unclean until the evening. But if she is cleansed of her discharge, she shall count for herself seven days, and after that she shall be clean." On the eighth day, she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons and bring them to the priest to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall use one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her before the Lord for her unclean discharge. Thus, you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. This is the law for him who has a discharge and for him who has an emission of semen becoming unclean thereby. Also for her who is unwell with her menstrual impurity, that is for anyone, male or female, who has a discharge and for the man who lies with a woman who is unclean. This is a less than pleasant chapter to read in the Bible, but you do need to remember that this was functioning not just as scripture for the church. This was law. This was not only law like thou shalt not steal. This was law functioning, as you might say, as health policy. These were kind of the OSHA requirements, you might say, of the people. And the Lord had rules for that, including things like emissions and discharges. And I've already talked a little bit about chiastic structure before, where the end and the, and the beginning are the same point, and then in the middle, it kind of breaks it down that way. And that's how this passage is structured. It starts out with abnormal discharge, normal discharge, Normal discharge, abnormal. So you can see that, that X-shaped outline, the chiastic structure. The first two are concerning men, and the second two are concerning women. So the word for discharge here is zuv in Hebrew. It means for something to flow or to gush like a river. But of course, this is talking about the body here. So discharge is the word. Primarily in context, this is referring to something like an STD. The word, it says, from his flesh is the word basar, and it's very often used to describe uh, genitalia. It's, in fact, used the same word for a woman and her flesh when it's describing her menstrual period here. So this is the kind of thing it's talking about. However, in context, uh, this also could have referred to matters like bowel infections, other kind of infections that a person has from the body. If you've ever had, again, really bad poison ivy, you know that it weeps and it's a discharge from the body. It would have been a similar kind of thing. Sanitation was not what it was, so seclusion was your best bet. So anything or anybody that this person, this man touched or sat on would need to be washed. If it was earthenware, it would need to be broken. This is not the kind of disease you want spreading in the camp, obviously. Now, if he is clean for seven days, so everything has dried up, then on the eighth, he could wash himself. 
take two birds to the tabernacle for a sin offering and a burnt offering. So there's no lambs involved here. This is a smaller, uh, smaller matter. The second thing we see was a man who had a seminal emission. Typically here, this would have been in intercourse. This is what we call a normal discharge. So first it was abnormal, like a disease. This is just something that happens normally and naturally in the course of time. And all that he needed to do here was to wash anything that had been soiled. If he had been with his wife or with a woman, they both were to wash themselves and they would be unclean until the evening, no sacrifice required. And again, all being unclean means is you cannot touch anything that is holy. You cannot go into the tabernacle to worship. This is not that they had to go outside the camp or anything like that. Third, another normal discharge, this time concerning women, was a normal menstrual cycle. Anything upon which she lied or any man that she copulated with would be washed and would be unclean until the evening. So again, this is uh, not requiring a sacrifice of any kind. This is just something that happens in the normal course of life. By the way, reading this chapter reflects back on what we read in the book of Genesis when it says that uh, Rachel had hidden her father's gods in her saddlebag and she sat on the saddlebag and she said she was in the time of her menstrual impurity. So that's what God has to say about your household gods is what he's trying to communicate there, that they are just as unclean as anything else. By the way, there will be a law that comes later on in the second half of Exodus where God will prohibit them from having any kind of sexual intercourse during a woman's menstrual cycle. And this seems to be why, because there was a seven-day impurity here. There's also an interesting note that this menstrual cycle would not have occurred as often back then as it tends to do today because women were married very young and they were continually having children. So there was obviously no birth control. There was nothing like that. And people did not have fewer children out of convenience. They wanted to have as many as possible. So uh, this would not have been as common as you might think it is. I thought that was an interesting cultural note that I missed. But the fourth was a woman who has an irregular bleed that lasts too long. So whether this is during the, the normal cycle, it extends longer than a week, not in recovery, but in the actual bleed itself, or if it was not during the normal cycle. All the same rules apply as when she was on her period, but she could not end this early, right? So she could not say, oh, it's all better, I'm done. No, you had to go through the whole system here. Afterwards, she would take two birds for a sin and a burnt offering. Because again, this is irregular. This is not just the normal course of life. Now, this passage sheds an awful lot of light on the miracle that Jesus performed in Luke chapter 8. Do you remember the woman who had the issue of blood for all those years and the physicians were not able to help her? This is her situation right here. She can't be touched. Nobody can come into her, her house and sit with her. And she can't get married, certainly, because her husband would not have been able to even consummate the marriage. So she comes up to Jesus. And what does she do? She touches him, which was a no-no. We just read that, Leviticus chapter 15. She would have just made Messiah Jesus unclean. So what does she try to do? She tries to sneak away. But what does Jesus say? Very, very loudly stops the crowd. He says, who touched me? That is like got to be the worst thing, the last thing she wanted to hear. Because they knew who she was. And if she says, it was me, I touched you. They'd say, that woman is unclean. And she was. And you just touched the rabbi on his way to heal the little girl who, of the synagogue ruler. Now Jesus is unclean. He can't go into the synagogue ruler's house. He can't heal this little girl. She's dead because of you. All of a sudden, this story gets much more serious, doesn't it? But then the grace, the grace of Jesus, right? 
He goes over to her. He touches her again and says, oh, daughter, your faith has made you well. By the way, Jesus calls her daughter. She had had this impurity for so long. Jesus, this probably was a younger woman. Don't think of her as an old woman. This is a young woman that was waiting for her day to come, for her true love to come, but he couldn't, right? Because she was unclean. So what do you think she did first thing the next morning? How do I get my hand on some turtle doves? Because I'm going to go to the temple. I'm going to be cleansed of this. I'm going to move on with my life. Praise Jesus. Isn't that great? So these laws, of course, these are, I think, of among the ones we've read, all oh, the leprosy ones too, but I hope they all, you can see they make a lot of sense. They're sanitary. And Jesus, or the Lord, is not being onerous in his requirements here. In most cases, he says, you, you just need to take a bath. Wash your clothes, take a bath, and don't go to church that day. Don't go to the tabernacle. It's a holy, special place. So you haven't done anything wrong, but you're going to stay off because this is a special time and a special place. But this also was to prevent licentious sexuality among the people. The Lord puts all these requirements about sexuality and cleanness and worship. You were not to go into the Lord's house that day if you had had sexual intercourse. Contrast that with all the pagan neighbors they had where they would go to the temple to have sexual intercourse and that was their worship. The Lord is providing a strong contrast here and is also protecting the marriages of his people in so doing. Consider how free we are today with our sexuality. Now, again, we're not under these laws here, but we can learn a thing or two from the Lord who just put a few breaks on, on sex among his people because we're out of control. I think we all know that. Even, even something like there, there are artists, female artists now that will, will paint portraits with their menstrual blood. It's, it's shameful. It's unclean. It's not empowering. It's not right. We ought to know that. We ought, we ought to see that the farther you drift from the Lord, you degrade yourself. And we degrade ourselves sexually far too often, unfortunately. But maybe you're wondering at the fact that even natural good things like marriage caused uncleanness. And this is the kind of thing that some people outside the church have a hard time with. Oh, so God says that women who have children or a woman on her cycle or a married couple, like that, that's, that's unclean, that's not right. Well, as I already said, we're not talking about morality here. But there is a lesson to be learned from this. In John 13, 10, when Jesus was washing the feet of the disciples, and first of all, Peter said, don't wash my feet. And Jesus said, I need to wash your feet. He said, fine, then my hands on my head too. And Jesus said, I just realized that. That's how they would do the anointing of the blood on people when they were being cleansed, wasn't it? You do the head, you do the hand, you do the foot. So maybe that's what Peter was getting at. In any case, Jesus said in John 13, 10, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely, what? Clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. I love this principle. He says, no, you're clean, Peter. You don't need to be cleansed of your sin. I don't need to go through the whole thing. I just got to wash your feet. That's day-to-day -day life, right? Something like having a child or being intimate with your wife or your husband. It's day-to-day -day life. There's nothing wrong with it, but it teaches us that everyday life can accumulate uncleanness in a Christian's life. Just going about your day, if you're not being actively pursuing the Lord, then the day-to-day -day uncleanness will start to stick to you. And on its own, each individual thing might not be bad, but if it just becomes too much, then you need to be cleansed. This is why spiritual disciplines like prayer, daily Bible reading, even things like fasting are so important. You've got to take the time every day to make sure that I don't need to get saved again but I do need to wash my feet. 
because I've been walking around in the world today. I've seen things that I didn't want to see. I've heard things I didn't want to hear. I've heard people blaspheme and drag the name of Jesus through the mud. So I'm going to come back and take the time to worship and to be with the Lord every day. And that brings us to the end of the cleanliness laws. And the lesson that we need to learn from this, because we saw Nadab and Abihu were struck down, purity is required to enter God's house. And I rejoice that when I read God's ancient commandments, they make so much sense. Don't touch a sick person if you haven't washed your hands. If you're contagious, you need to stay away from people so they don't get sick. If you've got fungus growing in your house and it won't go away, the house must be condemned. They, they just make so much sense. They keep us clean, literally. And the lesson that we learn as Christians is to go above and beyond and remain unspotted from the world. Don't let the unclean, uncleanness of sin get a hold of you. James 1.27, we'll close here. He writes, religion that is pure and undefiled, another Old Testament Torah word there, undefiled, is this. Visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. James was writing to Jewish Christians. He says, if you want to remain undefiled, it's not about the law. It's about staying unstained from the world and the sin thereof. More importantly, Jesus is our healer and our spiritual cleanser. He was unafraid. Jesus did not share in our sin, but he shared in our uncleanness. Isn't that wonderful? He didn't become a sinner, but he became unclean for your sake. And he offers us healing body and soul, even right now.